This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the history of witchcraft. Episode 16, The Legacy of the Magi. The eleventh of the good lands and countries which I, a horror Mazda, created was the bright, glorious Hatemant. Thereupon came Ahriman, who is all death and he counter-created the evil work of witchcraft. And this is the sign by which it is known, this is that by which it is seen at once. Wheresoever they may go and raise a cry of sorcery, there the worst works of witchcraft go forth. From there they come to kill, and strike at heart, and they bring locusts as many as they want. An excerpt from the sixteen perfect lands of Ahura Mazda and the many plagues of Ahriman. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last episode, we took a look at what we know about the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia and Egypt, and how these societies saw the difference between lawful magic and unlawful witchcraft in very slight shades of grey. In this episode, we are going to examine how witchcraft was treated by the religion of the Persian empires, Zoroastrianism, which took a much harsher line. Persia was one of the great civilizations of antiquity, with a centralised state unsurpassed in both its size and efficiency, and a repeated enemy of the Greeks and Romans. I should state that the term Persia is not the name used by the people in the empires, the Greeks called the realm Persis, while the Romans called it Persa, but the Persians themselves used Iran or its earlier forms of Irania or Iran Shah, both of which I am undoubtedly mispronouncing. In the interest of clarity, I'm going to continue calling the various empires Persia and call its people Persians. But what do I mean by Persia? I'm of course referring to the succession of empires that ruled and dominated the Iranian plateau and Mesopotamia, sometimes ruling over parts of India, Anatolia, Egypt, and into the steppes of the north. The first state that is said to have held sway over this area was called the Median Empire, which existed from the start of the 7th century BCE. Formed by a people from Hamadan, a region in northwestern modern-day Iran, the Medes expanded into the vacuum left by the decaying Neo-Assyrian Empire, which we referred to last episode. From here, they spread across the Caucasus to the Persian Gulf, before being conquered by their vassals, the Achaemenids, in 550 BCE. Where the Medians suffer from a lack of sources, the Achaemenids do not have that problem. We know that the Achaemenid Empire was formed during the rule of Cyrus the Great, who declared himself the ruler of all the Iranian peoples, 
and subsequently made that claim a fact through conquest and diplomacy. The Achaemenids forged an empire that is notable for being the largest single territory in the ancient world, controlling Egypt, parts of the Balkans, Afghanistan, and everything in between. I've put a map of the Achaemenid Empire in roughly 480 BC on the Facebook page, and it really is quite impressive a feat in an era where communication and travel were so difficult. This is the empire that fought the Greeks, and gave us the stories of the battles of Thermopylae, Salamis, and Marathon, which in turn gave us the film 300, and then 302, and also the sporting extravaganza that is the London Marathon. The Achaemenids were pushed back and conquered in turn by the armies of Alexander the Great, the Macedonian king who marched from the Balkans, through Anatolia, to Egypt, and on to the Indus Valley, in just a few short years. While rivalling the Achaemenid Empire in size, Alexander's empire could not compete in terms of stability, and shortly after Alexander's untimely death in 323 BCE, his favoured generals fought for dominance, sometimes politically, but often on the battlefield. After fighting a number of wars, and assassinating the young son of Alexander the Great, these generals, the Diadochi, decided that this just wasn't working out. It's not me, it's all of you. Alexander's empire was carved up, the surviving Diadochi ruling independently of one another and establishing their own dynasties. In the heartland of the former Achaemenid Empire, Seleucus Nicator became Vasilevs, or king, of his new kingdom, establishing himself in Babylon and expanding his new realm to encompass most of the old Achaemenid holdings. While the Seleucids enjoyed some early successes, once the growing power of Rome made itself known, the empire began its decline, suffering multiple defeats and a civil war or two. The governor of the Seleucid province of Parthia, Andragoras, took advantages of disturbances within and without the Seleucid Empire to declare himself an independent king of Parthia. Aha, you might be thinking. So this, this is the start of the Parthian Empire that was such a powerful and deadly enemy of Rome for centuries. Well, not quite. The area that made up the province of Parthia was northeastern Seleucia, east of the Caspian Sea, and just across the border, a man called Arsaces had recently been elected king of the Parni, an Iranian tribe. Arsaces celebrated his ascension by, what else, invading the newly independent Parthia, while the Seleucids, who were busy in their own problems, looked on with what one can imagine was a you've-made-your-bed-now-sleep-in-it attitude. Andragoras was without military assistance, and he was killed in the conquest. Arsaces then became the king of Parthia, and his empire, sometimes called the Arsacid Empire after the founder and dynasty, expanded at the expense of the Seleucids, rapidly conquering traditional Persian territory in Iran and Mesopotamia, despite nominally becoming vassals of the Seleucids. This is the Parthian Empire which would rival Rome for dominance over the east. Seleucia was left as little more than a buffer state between the new empire and the expanding Romans, and it was eventually annexed as a Roman province in 64 BCE, during Pompey the Great's tidy-up of the region, following the Third Mithridatic War. An ignominious end to a formerly vast empire. Over the 400 years of Parthian rule, the Arsacids would be a constant thorn in the side of the Roman Empire, as the Romans were to it. 
The Parthian Empire would come to an end at the hands of the Sassanids, a vassal turned usurping dynasty that would come close to restoring the ancient boundaries of the Achaemenids. They briefly conquered the Roman provinces of Egypt, Palestine, and large parts of Anatolia during a gruelling war with Vasilevs Heraclius in the first half of the 7th century, before being defeated and returning the provinces to Roman governance. Unfortunately for both empires, this war left the Roman and Sasanian militaries harshly depleted, making them ill-prepared for the Arab invasions of the 7th century. While the Romans managed to retreat behind the Taurus Mountains, abandoning the very same provinces they had only just recovered, the Persians were overwhelmed by this powerful and motivated force. While they enjoyed some successful defences, the caliphal armies smashed the Sasanian armies in their way, the capital of Ctesiphon was captured, and the royal court fled further into the empire, time and again failing to manifest any united force that could challenge the invaders. The final Sassanid king, Yazdegerd III, died an ignominious death. He was killed and robbed by a miller for his fancy clothes and purse in 651, although some rumours swirled that this was actually on the orders of a provincial governor Yazdegerd had irritated with his demands for assistance. This is but a brief chronology of Persian history prior to the rise of Islam, and is woefully, even criminally, generalised and lacking detail. But this is a necessary sacrifice to avoid turning this episode into a history of Persia. No, this episode is not about the individual Persian empires or dynasties, but rather about one relatively common thread throughout this entire period. Each of these empires either advocated or at least accepted the religion of Zoroastrianism. And wow, Zoroastrianism was not keen on witchcraft. The religion of Zoroastrianism was named after the prophet Zoroaster, or Zarathustra, and seems to have reformed a previously established form of worship. The religion states that good and evil are both defined concepts and have divine origins. Good is championed by Ahura Mazda, or Almazd, and evil by Angramani or Ahriman. Angramani roughly translates to spirit of destruction, and alongside his other shining traits he is hailed as the creator of sorcery and witchcraft. Within Persia, and among the Zoroastrian faithful, their religion was endlessly opposed to sorcery and witchcraft, witches were meant to have an intimate connection to Ahriman and his evil spirits, not dissimilar to the later Christian belief in demonic pacts. In a Pavlavi book, whose title I haven't got a chance of pronouncing correctly, a sage asks the spirit of wisdom what the most heinous of sins is, and the reply is witchcraft. And in another text, witchcraft is decried as, quote, the most grievous sin of all. The Zaratostnamar, the pronunciation of which I have butchered without remorse, is a poem written in the 13th century, apparently based on an original Zoroastrian text held by the Moabadan Moabad, the high priest of Zoroastrianism, and it details the life of Zoroaster himself. The birth of the prophet caused, quote, great consternation among witches, end quote, and both witches and their demonic allies sought to have him killed when he was young. Clearly, this did not go particularly well, as the leader of the witches was killed in an altercation with a grown Zoroaster. I'd imagine this altercation involved Zoroaster giving him a harsh talking to about the whole trying to murder me as a baby thing, but this was not the end of the prophet's beef with witches. Later in his life, Zoroaster kills a number of witches 
simply by reciting the Avesta, although some scholars have suggested that this could be a poetic telling, of the Zoroastrian creed conflicting with the religions that came before it, before becoming the dominant sect. In the religious texts of the Avesta and the hymns of the Gathas, the demons sent by Ahriman are described in three general ways. There were the unseen demons who would cause sickness, famine and bad luck. The people that actually performed the black magic that summoned and controlled these demons, those members of society that worshipped Ahriman and were guilty of witchcraft, and people of other sects or religions who had been sent by Ahriman to lure righteous Zoroastrians away from the true faith and to their damnation through the sin of unbelief. Both the sorcerers and the heretics were believed to make use of the same rituals as true Zoroastrians, perverting their use through their blasphemy. Spellbooks used by the Magi to conduct their rituals have clear instructions that the knowledge was confined to those of the priesthood, as their use by those untrained in magic, or worse, those serving Araman, would have dire consequences. The punishments that awaited in the afterlife for those who used witchcraft and therefore consorted with the power of Araman were horrendous. According to the Book of Arda Varaf, a Zoroastrian text from the late Sasanid era, a man called Varaf, or Varaz, who is righteous, or Arda, is chosen to travel the afterlife in his dreams, in order for him to recount what he finds there to prove the truth of the Zoroastrian faith. In the introduction to the text, the author laments the state of the religion in the aftermath of Alexander's destruction of the Achaemenid Empire. They say that, once upon a time, the pious Zoroaster made the religion, which he had received, current in the world. Until the completion of 300 years, the religion was in purity, and men were without doubts. But afterward, the accursed evil spirit, the wicked one, in order to make men doubtful of his religion, instigated the accursed Alexander, the Roman, who was dwelling in Egypt, so that he came to the country of Iran with severe cruelty and war and devastation. He also slew the ruler of Iran and destroyed the metropolis and empire and made them desolate. And this religion, namely all the Avesta and Zand, written upon prepared cowskins and with gold ink, was deposited in the archives in Papakan, and the hostility of the evil-destined, wicked Ashimok, the evildoer, brought onward Alexander the Roman, who was dwelling in Egypt, and he burned them. And he killed several Dastors and judges and herbads and mobads and upholders of the religion, and the competent and wise of the country of Iran. And he cast hatred and strife, one with the other, amongst the nobles and householders of the country of Iran. And self-destroyed, he fled to hell. The text refers to Alexander as a Roman because he was known to come from Greece, which at the time of writing had been part of the Roman Empire for centuries. When Viraf was chosen, or volunteered to enter the afterlife, his seven sister wives burst into the convocation and decried the ceremony. Obviously, the first thought anyone would have upon hearing that someone was going to be sent to the afterlife is that it was a one-way trip. The elders of this convocation, the Mazdayaznians, pacified the sister wives, promising to return Viraf to them in a mere seven days. Viraf then drank three glasses of wine and consumed a hallucinogen, while the Mazdayaznians and his sister wives surrounded him, kept a fire burning, and conducted protective rituals and prayers to keep his spirits safe. And, as promised, Viraf awoke on the seventh day, 
was fed and watered, and began to recite his experiences to a scribe. Upon his arrival in the afterlife, he met a number of angels, and, eventually, Ahura Mazda himself. As it stands, the Zoroastrian heaven described by Viraf sounds lovely, but quite hierarchical. I also saw the souls of those who, in the world, chanting the Gathas and used the prescribed prayers, and were steadfast in the good religion of the Mazda Yasnians, which Ormazd taught to Zoroaster. When I advanced, they were in gold-embroidered and silver-embroidered clothes, the most embellished of all clothing, and it seemed to me very sublime. I also saw a soul of those who contract next-of-kin marriages in material fashion splendour, when the lofty splendour of its residents ever increased thereby, and it seemed to me sublime. I also saw the souls of good rulers and monarchs who ever increased their greatness, goodness, power, and triumph when they walk in splendour in their golden trousers, and it seemed to me sublime. I also saw the soul of the great and of truthful speakers who walked in lofty splendour with great glory, and it seemed to me sublime. In many ways, a pious life meant the continuation of your worldly pursuits in the afterlife. If you spent your life as a devout farmer, then your heaven was a farm that never suffered disease or drought. If you were a shepherd, your flocks were tame and never attacked by wolves or thieves. Personally, after a lifetime of the same job, I would probably not want to spend eternity doing the same thing, but it is much more preferable than being in the Zoroastrian hell. I also saw the soul of a woman who ever chewed with her teeth and ever ate her own dead refuse. And I asked thus, whose soul is this? Srosh the pious and Adar the angel said thus, this is the soul of that wicked woman by whom in the world sorcery was practiced. Then I saw the soul of a woman whose tongue was cut away and eyes scooped out and snakes, scorpions, worms, and other noxious creatures ever devoured the brain of her head. And from time to time she seized her own body with the teeth, and ever gnawed the flesh. And I asked thus, what sin was committed by this body? Srosh the pious and Nadar the angel said thus, this is the soul of that wicked woman who was in her lifetime an adulteress. She also practiced much sorcery and much mischief emanated from her. I also saw the souls of women who ever lacerated their own breasts with their own hands and teeth, and dogs ever tore and ate their bellies, and both feet stood on a hot brass. And I asked thus, whose souls are these, and what sin was committed by them? Srosh the pious and Adar the angel said thus, these are the souls of those wicked women who, in the world, prepared food during menstruation, and brought it before a pious man and bade him eat. They also resorted to sorcery, and they injured the earth of Spandamad and the pious man. These are only some of the examples Varaf gives of the punishment for sinners. For the perpetrators of witchcraft, they could look forward to a hell where they, quote, lacerate their breasts with their own hands, their feet stand on hot iron, dogs gnaw at their bellies, their tongues are cut away, and their eyes gouged out with hot pokers. Snakes, scorpions, worms, and other noxious creatures devoured their brain, and from time to time they gnaw their own flesh, before they are forced to devour their own waste. 
not exactly a pleasant experience for all of eternity. The difference between the ceremonies of Zoroastrianism and witchcraft appeared to be defined by their intended use more than anything else. As an example, Zoroastrians performed ritual sacrifice in order to empower Azura Mazda and aid the eternal war against evil. Likewise, witches were believed to perform their own sacrifices to strengthen the demons that fought Ahura Mazda. Noble uses of magic were prevalent in Zoroastrian societies. Spells could ward off evil spirits, protect people, cattle and crops from the works of Ahriman and his evil sorcerers, as well as to receive a favour from higher powers in the form of affecting the weather, or hastening the return of a loved one from war or travel. Similar to Pharaonic Egypt, magic was inseparable from healing and medicine. In one account, malaria is cured by, of all things, a cup of tea. Now, as a strong believer in the restorative powers of tea, I agree that a good brew can fix nearly anything. However, the Persians had a slightly different method than just drinking it. The tea was made from boiled herbs which was then left out in the sun, and an iron nail was given to the patient. The patient then declared, I give my fever to this nail, which was then buried. Some of the tea is then poured over the nail, while the patient drinks the rest. Now, personally, I'd prefer an entire fresh cup of tea than half a lukewarm cup that's been left outside, but then again, I've never had malaria, so maybe I'd feel a little bit differently in that position. This type of healing ritual would be considered separate to an exorcism, as although illnesses were thought to be caused by being demonically possessed, most of these evil spirits were fairly minor, and could be dispersed through simple rituals such as these. If the ritual did not lead to a full recovery, then the illness was caused by a particularly powerful demon that was unwilling to leave its victim through ordinary means. This would require a more powerful exorcism, performed by one of the clergy, as our Astrian Magi, invoking the sacred words of the Avesta and the Gathas. Other exorcisms were needed to purge those who had handled dead bodies. Again, we can see the logic behind this through the lens of modern science. Dead bodies are home to many diseases, and since diseases were thought to be caused by demons, dead bodies themselves must be a source of evil. Houses in which someone had died were considered possessed, and must be exorcised to remove the demon that polluted it, and these exorcisms often involved both holy water and, less stereotypically, the urine of a bull. Like the healing ritual, some herbs were considered to be gifts from Ahura Mazda and were used in these ceremonies to combat the effects of the demonic pawns of Araman, but it was the exorcism ritual itself that was considered the most effective, with any herbs or medicines merely supplementing the word's power. After the corpse was removed, the Avesta describes how long a house must lay empty. Nine days in winter and a month in summer, with violators being punished by being flogged four hundred times, a punishment second only to execution in its severity. It is in Persian writings such as the Yasht and the Videvdad that there are special mentions of how these exorcisms would take place. For cases where the demonic contamination was particularly strong, these rituals could take nine days to complete, with the number nine having a special meaning in Persian magic, being the expected number of donations and sacrifices to Ahura Mazda, among other things. The Barshnam ritual, or purification ritual, required the Magi chant while making a series of lines on the ground, in multiples of three, but not more than nine, and these lines could be both square as well as circular. 
The use of these lines was intended to make the Magi inside the shape invisible to the demons he was about to confront, and so protect the Magi from their wrath. Once safely obscured from his demonic foe, the Magi could then perform the chance to disable the demon, or attempt to kill the enemy sorcerer that had sent it. In this way, the Magi performed their role as spiritual defenders of the Zoroastrian faithful. Both an individual's and a community's vulnerability to disease is stated to be tied to their moral health. Performing evil acts, such as theft or murder, left an individual more open to possession by sickness-causing demons, while a society that allowed these acts to go unpunished would suffer the same fate. Of particular offence to the gods was a community that allowed a witch to steal items meant for use by the gods. Offerings or temple decorations appeared to have been stolen often enough to be mentioned in the Avesta, and of course, such blasphemy and disrespect could only be the behaviour of those in the sway of the ultimate evil. Individuals opened themselves up to demons through being in contact with anything impure, such as the previously mentioned corpses, as well as menstruating women. Everything between simply touching the woman to engaging in sexual intercourse was not only a grievous sin that risked demonic possession, but also carried the earthly risk of receiving a punishment of 200 lashes. Such was the danger associated with menstruating women that in some cases they were removed from the community itself, sent into the hills and mountains until the impurity had passed. Likewise, if a child was birthed stillborn, the grieving mother was partitioned away in a tent some distance from the community for about a fortnight, living on a mix of milk, wine, and ash until she was considered purified and could return to her family. As mentioned earlier, female health problems were forbidden to be tended to by the Magi at the risk of their own souls, and as such, any medical attention in cases of childbirth and abortion, as well as common illnesses, were left to wise women, who would make use of similar rituals and herbs as the Magi, but without the proper sanction. With this blatant flouting of the Avestan rules and restricting rituals to the priesthood, it is little surprise that these wise women often found themselves executed or driven away for witchcraft, especially if their treatments did not succeed. Wise women appear regularly in the hell of the Yard of Araf, as do women who caused the death of their child, either terminating the pregnancy or shortly after their birth. The rituals involved in black magic share many similarities with beliefs we've seen before, beliefs that harmful and helpful magic were made more potent when any spells or potions contained something from the victim slash patient. Special care was made to avoid this, and Persian folklore suggests that prayers were recited over clipped fingernails and then be buried to prevent their use against their former owner. The correct performance of this ritual was key, not only for the protection of the person they once belonged to. Improperly buried fingernails, as well as hair, spawned supernatural pawns of Ariman, Devas, and Kraftstras, who would spread illness and misery. Despite the Zoroastrian hatred of anything approaching witchcraft, it is something of an irony that the Persian word Magi evolved into the words for magic, magician, and mage. While it may seem odd that these Zoroastrian priests, who denounced magic and sorcery as the greatest of crimes, would lend their name to many of the words connected to the act of witchcraft, this is probably due to the misunderstanding of the Greek scholars who recorded them. In fact, most of the Hellenistic understanding of Zoroaster was at odds with what Zoroastrians actually believed. 
The Greeks believed that Zoroaster lived around the 6th or 7th millennium BCE, an impossibly ancient figure who formed the original Mesopotamian and Median religions. A number of documents appeared and were circulated in the 3rd century BCE, attributed to the Persian prophet, but it's highly unlikely that this literature was written by Zoroaster or any of his magi, as the earliest documents were written in Greek. Claiming the prophet was the source of the documents gave them some additional gravitas. Roger Beck suggests that the Greeks considered the best wisdom to be exotic wisdom, and a long-dead Zoroaster would be an ideal source to give any documents some additional authority on what they discussed. What these documents suggested was that Zoroaster was the inventor of magic and sorcery, an idea championed by Pliny the Elder, the Roman historian writing in the 1st century BCE. The practice of naming a prestigious person as the source of some philosophy or witticism has hardly gone away. It reminds me of that completely inaccurate definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting things to come out differently, which I often see attributed to Albert Einstein. In fact, can I just say, Einstein gets the short end of the stick with these things. Every wise phrase or political joke seems to have either been said by him or had been about him, and it's all nonsense. He would be spinning in his grave like a rotisserie chicken, if he hadn't been cremated, of course. But I digress. The idea that Zoroaster, who believers held as the arch-enemy of sorcery, was actually the inventor of magic is quite a leap. These vastly contrasting ideas could be explained by being the result of two cultures that repeatedly found themselves at war with the empires of the East, as both Hellenistic Greece and the expanding Roman Empire found a common enemy in Persia, regardless of which dynasty ruled the empire at the time. The Greeks considered magic, or pharmaca, to be a negative, and having a Persian prophet be the source of this power, and Persian magi the wielders of it, would explain how sorcery found its way to Greece. Pythagoras, the famous mathematician, was also a famous magician, and was believed to have learnt this mysterious trade during his travels in Persia, and it was sometimes said he learnt from Zoroaster himself while the region of Thessaly in northern Greece was a favourite for Hellenistic writers who wanted to provide an origin for whichever sorcerer or witch was going to be the villain. Thessaly was renowned as the home of Greek witchcraft, possibly due to the extended period of Persian occupation during the Greco-Persian Wars, and a lingering resentment at the capitulation of Thessaly prior to the Battle of Thermopylae. We will cover all of this in greater detail next episode. The coming of Islam would mean the replacement of Zoroastrian texts within the Quran, but the belief in magic and the dangers that witchcraft represented was just as clearly stated in the new holy book as it was in the old. Many of these beliefs were not purely religious in nature, and the cultural grounding of these traditions meant that these beliefs would remain within the lands ruled by the Shah for centuries. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.